Let's begin with prayer. Oh Lord God, we sing of that little town, not because the town is at all significant, but because, Father, one was born there who was full of significance for us, Lord. Lord, we want to make much of Jesus in our church, Lord, and we want to make him known through our church, Father. And so, Lord, we appreciate this opportunity to open up your word, Lord, that your word might feed us with its truth, Father, and that we might be so amazed and in love and full of faith and joy over you that we might respond by going and lovingly sharing the good news and the love of Jesus with others. We thank you, Father, that you did send your Son for us, Lord, and that we get this special time to be able to reflect upon his coming, Father. Lord, the incarnation is that the eternal God, the Son of God himself, became a man by taking on flesh. He became like us, Lord, and Lord, we are so humbled by that. And yet, Father, we are even more humbled by the reality that he came not just to be a man, but to die as a man for us, Lord, to pay for our sins. We ask that you would help the good news of Jesus to be loud and clear today, Lord. And would you fill us with, your, with love for you, Lord, that we might have love for others. And we pray this in your name. Amen. It is people who fill the bulk of our Christmas memories, right? Not the presents, not the food, not the declarations, not even the, the wonderful music. What we remember years and even decades later are the people who were around us and the times that we shared together. We recall the loud and the ruckus festivities as well as the quiet and the intimate conversations. The varying personality traits of each of our different loved ones and those little events that end up going down in family lore. We recollect the joyful moments as well as the sad moments. The great fun along with the feelings of loss. Because people are there and then sadly they are not. A holiday like Christmas connects us to the people that we love, past and present. And this is good because Christmas is all about love. After all, it was the love of God that inspired the very heart of Christmas. But Christ followers know that love isn't something that we merely get to enjoy at certain festive times of year, but that, but that love is actually commanded of us throughout our days. That we are to love and perform the hard work of love even when those around us don't really appear to be all that lovable. We are to love others when the tree gets taken down. We are to love others when the leftovers are all gone. We are to love others when the presents have lost all of their newness and luster. We are to love others when those others don't invoke any warm memories or happy recollections. We are to love others even in the hard moments, and we're to do so with selflessness. So, how? 
How are Christians to do this? How are followers of Christ to show enduring love to other people when it can be so hard to do so? And the answer is by understanding the true heart of Christmas. We find today's Christmas message from the Apostle John's first letter where he relates three central truths about love. And they are, number one, that love is the identity of God's beloved. And number two, Christmas Day is perfect love on display. And number three, that love is the response of God's beloved. So truth number one from the Apostle John to us today is that love is the identity of God's beloved. Look with me again at verses 7 and 8. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, John the writer preached, but he also practiced what he preached. First of all, see his exhortation. In verse 7, he says, let us love one another. So he here challenges Christians most expressly to love each other, to love other Christians, other believers in King Jesus, other people in the local church. We are to love one another. Now, this doesn't negate the responsibility of loving those outside the church or even loving those who do not know Jesus, of course. But the emphasis here is upon Christian brotherly love where spiritual brothers and spiritual sisters in Christ love each other. And he uses the word love here as a verb, doesn't he? It is an action that is to be conducted through proper motivation. The warm affections of the Christian's heart are to result in kind actions in the Christian's life. Out of hearts of warmth, they are to use their words and their hands and their energies and even their money to help other people. And see John's example. He himself loved he calls them, in verse 7 and again in verse 11, beloved. He's actually using this word several times in this letter already. Back in chapter 2, verse 7, he calls them beloved before he provided them with some needed instruction. In chapter 3, verse 2, John called them beloved before he reminded them of Christ's second coming and the change that they would experience when he arrived. And in chapter 3, verse 21, he again calls them beloved as he reminds them of the great confidence that they could and should have in God. And now, John calls them beloved two more times in our passage. And what I think this reveals about John is his profound care for these other believers in Christ. 
He loved them enough as a teacher, as a pastor, to write them this letter in order to instruct them in the insurance, the assurance they could have in Christ. As joint children of God, John recognized the love they each shared for one another, and he was quick to express it, which obviously provided them with much encouragement. But before I say too much more, the source of love must be understood. Verse 7, John says to them, love is from God. So God is the source of all love, because love is from God. Whenever we see love in this world, the warm affections that result in kind actions, we should see that love as ultimately coming from God, because God is the well from which all love is drawn. But how, you might ask, how can we say that God is the source of love when we see what looks to be genuine love conducted by people who don't even believe in God. Since people who reject God still often show such love, sometimes even greater love than Christians, how can it be said that God is the source of love? Well, the answer is that all people all people are made in the image of God. And though sin has tarnished our ability to fully resemble him as we were made to do, we still remain as tarnished image bearers. And as such, we still see genuine love displayed from parents to children, from friends to friends and so forth, all around the world, even by people who reject the God who made them. Their love is not perfected. Their love is weak in comparison to God's great example and model of love. Their love fails to fill up the measure of the love they'd be capable of if they were in Christ. And their love is certainly intermingled with pride and self-love but they do have love because they are in God's image. They came from God, and they were made to resemble God, the source of all love. Furthermore, in verse 8, John writes words that are even more incredible. He says, God is love. So God is not merely the source of love, he is love. Love is God's very nature. It is who he is, and it marks all that he does. As John Calvin wrote, God is love, that is, he, his nature is to love men. Now, the Apostle John, at several points in his writings, he makes these succinct little declarations about who God is in his very nature. He's the one writer who really just narrows it down in little succinct ways, little truth statements about who God is. For instance, in John 4, verse 24, John the Apostle writes, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. 
God is spirit. God's nature is a spirit nature. He does not have flesh, but is a spirit. So when Jesus, God's son, came to earth, he took on flesh. He added human nature to his divine nature, which is a spirit nature. And the two are forever together. And John writes at the very beginning of this letter, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, these words. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. He says God is light. God's nature is light. It is thus morally pure and bright and good, and it is absent of all that is dark and tainted and bad. This speaks to God's moral perfection. In his nature, he is perfect light. So now, here in chapter 4, John writes that God is love. Love is defined by God because God is love. Love is truly expressed by God because God is love. Love is rightly understood through God because God is love. My friends, if you want to know what love is, as that old 80s song, I think, asked, you must merely look to God because God is love. He is the source of it, he is the perfect expression of it, and he is the place to look for it. And my friends, this truth matters profoundly with regard to our need to love one another. The command is that we love one another, but our ability to love stems from our identity. Our ability stems from our identity. Notice John's, word, John's words in verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. He doesn't just give the command and then stop. He gives the command, and then he says, Because, for, love is from God. We are to love because love is from God. This seems to reveal that God is the source, our source, for love. You and I are to love one another for God is love. In verse 7, he also says, Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So we actually perform love because we have been born of God and we even know God. And he says in verse 8, the contrast, he says, Anyone who does not love does not know God. If anyone doesn't show love, it's because they don't know the God of love. They don't know the source of love. They don't love because they don't know God. Now John is using here relationship language. Language that connects people's identities to God himself through an intimate relationship with him. He first speaks of being born again, doesn't he? Of this new birth. Now, John spoke of this more fully back in his gospel when he wrote in John 1, verses 12 and 13, to all who did receive him, referring to Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God 
who were born, catch this, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those who are born of God become children of God by God himself. God reaches down and he takes the sinner and he transforms that sinner. He makes that sinner new again in the heart. He makes that sinner a child of God. There is a rebirth that happens. It's not a birth by blood. And it's not a birth that happens because humans will it to happen. It's a birth that comes about because God declares and it happens. God does this. And to be born of God is to be reborn by God. It is to have God, through his grace, transform your heart from one of rebelliousness towards him to one of glad-hearted joy as a son or a daughter in his wonderful family. This is the rebirth of God that makes one part of his household. So that if you know Jesus, if you have believed in him, then it can be said of you that you have been reborn. You have had a new birth in God, by God. That he has done something in your heart that enabled you to be able to believe in Jesus Christ. And he has done something in your heart that makes you now a willing worshiper of the God who made you. God does that. And John, in chapter 4, also speaks of knowing God. Now, this is the essence of relationship, isn't it? To know someone. This speaks of the happy intimacy that is enjoyed by children toward a good father. Now, I would guess that some of you didn't have good fathers. Please understand that though you may not have had the example, if you want to see the perfect example of a good father, don't look to a human being. Don't look to a mere man. Look to the father in Scripture. John spoke this way before, back in chapter 1, when he used the word fellowship. He spoke of this relationship back in chapter 1 when he used the word fellowship. Listen to what he said in chapter 1, verse 3. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, here it is, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. What that means, my friends, is that when God saves us, he doesn't just say, okay, you're forgiven, now go about your business, I'm going to go back over here. He says, I'm going to save you, I'm going I'm to forgive you, I'm going to transform you, and then you and I, we are going to be son and father, we're going to be daughter and father, we're going to have a relationship, a fellowship together, and all of your brothers and sisters, we're all going to share in it together as a family. Christians have fellowship with the Father and with Jesus, his Son, through the enablement of the Spirit of God. This is also why John spoke of the essence of eternal life in the Gospel of John when Jesus said in chapter 17, verse 3 of John's Gospel, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. My friends, true Christians are not merely hoping for eternal life. Christians have eternal life because Christians have knowledge and a relationship with the Father God who saved us. And one day that fellowship is going to be complete, but even now it is enjoyed. So John, 
he connects a Christian's identity to God himself as God, here in chapter 4, has provided them with a relationship with him. The God of love has made Christians, his children, who know him deeply and who know him happily, and like their father God, they now also love. Like their father God, they now also love. Love, in other words, now defines the Christian too. It is his or her identity as a child of God who knows God as the good, good father. We thus can now obey the command to love one another because we have been made God's children. God is love, and when he goes and brings spiritual blood-bought children to himself, he makes them loving. So, let us love others because we are children of God. The second truth that John conveys is that Christmas Day is perfect love on display. Look at verses 9 and 10. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God is ever loving, but he most clearly showed his perfect love by sending his son, Jesus. He says, in this, the love of God was manifested or made known or put on display. Now, God has been showing his love since the foundation of the world, hasn't he? He created the earth and us in it, along with all of the galaxies and everything else, and he created it all as good. He has been patient, and he has even been merciful towards sinners, hasn't he? And his mercies are all around us each and every day. Yet, God has most clearly and most wonderfully shown his great love by sending his son. John Stott wrote that, he wrote these words. He said, while the origin of love is in the being of God, the manifestation of love is in the coming of Christ. The coming of Christ is a concrete historical revelation of God's love. For love is self-sacrifice, the seeking of another's positive good at one's own cost. And a greater self-giving than God's gift of his son there has never been nor could be. End quote. This is the heart of Christmas Day. God lovingly sent his only son to earth who took on human flesh as a man, as a babe. Jesus Christ, now God and man, fully God, fully man, both true at the same time. And God did this out of love for us. The perfect God, who by nature is spirit, humbled himself and took on the weakness of human flesh. And you know what it feels like 
because of love for us. Can you fathom it? Verse 9 says that Jesus is God's only son. He tells us more. He's his only son. This word only is the Greek word monogene, which refers to being the only one of its kind. He is the one and only, in other words. He is the unique son of God. Now, God has, as we have already mentioned, adopted other spiritual sons and spiritual daughters into his holy family, those who have been reborn and who have placed their faith in Jesus, but Jesus alone is his unique son. For Jesus is the very image of God, as the writer to Hebrews says, he is the, he is the exact imprint of God's nature, and Jesus, God himself, came to earth out of love. Now, fully understand the heart of Christmas. Fully understand it. God loved his enemies by sending his son as a sacrifice for his enemies. God loved his enemies by sending his son as a sacrifice for his enemies. Notice very carefully verse 10. He says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. My friends, love was not our doing. In fact, we have only shown God an unlove. Instead of embracing him as our good, good creator, we have each of us rejected him through our sin against him. He made us, he has set the rules over us, and they are good and just rules, and we have all of us broken those rules. We are all of us guilty against our creator God. We did not love him, we have sinned against him. But even though we have not loved God, here's the marvelous thing, God has loved us. God loved us to the point that he sent his only son into the world, not merely to become a human, but to actually die as a human. He sent his son to earth as a man for the ultimate goal of dying as a man. Because his death was the only sacrifice that could pay the price for sinners like you and like me. Paul writes in Romans 5 that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, while we were unfaithful, unloving, ungodlike, unrighteous, Christ died for us. So we happily sing, O come all you unfaithful. In verse 10, notice it says that God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now that's a big and strange word, isn't it? Propitiation. We've heard it before in our church, but it might be new to you. It's a big and it's a strange word, yet my friends, it's a wonderful word. It's one of my favorites. It means a sacrifice that restores 
the relationship. It's a sacrifice that atones for sin against God and brings us to peace with God. It refers to God the judge who is rightfully angry over the sins of those he created, but who still can believe it. Can you believe it? He still loves them to the point that he sent his only son Jesus to absorb his wrath against them by dying on the cross for them to pay the sins that they have created so that his beloved created ones could be relieved of his anger and could be lovingly welcomed as children into his family. The wrath problem that a righteous God has with fallen creatures is thereby removed because the Son of God became one of those creatures and he died for them. What love? This is love. This is the perfect love of Christmas. For all the decor and all the meals and all the music and all of the presents and all the fun, all the trappings, as good as they are, they are not the message. The message is that a baby came to be born. He cried. There was blood. It was a nasty affair, as all births are. A glorious, wonderful thing that God became a man. But that's not where the glory ultimately is found. It's ultimately found in the fact that 30 or so odd years later, that little boy became a full-grown man, and he died on the cross to pay the price for your sins and mine if we know Jesus. This is love. This is the perfect love of Christmas. So through God's perfect Christmas love, we find life and forgiveness of sin. He says in verse 9, so that we might live through him. And he says in verse 10, to be the propitiation for our sins. God's perfect Christmas love allows you and I to find life and forgiveness from sin. And once again, when he speaks of life, he speaks of a relationship that lasts eternally with God. So we must look to the perfect love that was put on display for us. Third truth, love is the response of God's beloved. Love is the response of God's beloved. He says in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Christ followers are to reciprocate God's so very great love. Now, John wrote the words in verse 11, God so loved us. The word so, it is a little Greek word which marks a relatively high degree of something. For instance, my children have often sung the song, My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do for you. They sing that song, and the song relates the high degree of God's power and the high degree of God's wisdom and so forth. He is so big. 
That's what the song is seeking to communicate. Well, John tells us that God so loved us. He doesn't just tell us that God loved us. That would be wonderful. But he actually tells us that God so loved us. And my friends, after having read verses 9 and 10, we get why he says it that way. God has so loved us that he didn't spare even his only son. Instead, he sent him for us, and his love just continues to be shown as he graciously continues to give. As Paul says in Romans 8, He, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Which means, not only is Jesus given enough, but on top of Jesus, God gives us all things that we need and all the delights that we could ever hope for in him. And in response, as children of the God of love who have experienced his so very great love, we now love. The high duty of the transformed and forgiven Christian is now to love others, especially other Christians. John uses the word ought in verse 11, which is to have an obligation. In other words, this is the Christian duty. We ought to love one another, not merely because God's law tells us to do so, and not merely because it's a good thing to do, and not merely because it will reap some earthly benefits. No, we ought to love one another because God has so loved us. God's accomplishment in the gospel of Jesus not only gives us the new identity of being his children, but it gives us the awesome message that warms our hearts towards God and others and makes us actually act like his children. In other words, the gospel empowers and the gospel motivates. God's gospel makes us love. How do we love unlovable people? By constantly looking to the one who loved unlovable people. And when Christians love, we demonstrate God's perfect love before others. That's what I think John's communicating in verse 12. He says that no one has ever seen God. God the Father is invisible spirit. And apart from the Son who took on flesh... We cannot see God. But, but if we Christians, followers of Jesus, actually love one another, something happens that is extraordinary to behold. What's extraordinary to behold? Well, sinners start loving other sinners the way God himself loved sinners. And when the world sees that, they have no explanation. And the so very great love of God is actually seen through us. Though God is spirit and no one has ever seen, when they see us acting in love, they get a glimpse of God's nature and character and goodness. He says in verse 12, God abides in us 
and his love is perfected in us. When we love each other, we show that God is actually in us, that his spirit abides with us and is actually working in us. We show God's inner working to the world around us. And when we love each other, his love is perfected in that it is completed or accomplished in us, meaning that it comes full circle as we begin to show God's love in the same way that Jesus showed his love for us. The inner transformation begins to look more and more complete, more and more like God's perfect love, for we are then loving like God. And this is seen by the world, which is why Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. People see disciples acting in love and they say, oh, they're followers of Jesus, of a good, good So let us respond to God's love by loving one another. Now here is my appeal to you with this Christmas message. Two points, two appeals. Number one, know the God of Christmas love. Know the God of Christmas love. The God who is love has shown you the perfect example of love. He has sent his son into the world so that you might live through him. He has sent his son to be the sacrifice that you need for your sin. He has done this for you. And Christmas is a unique opportunity to again say what we hope to always say from this place, that God loves sinners. So will you come to know God by turning from your sin and placing your faith in the Christ of Christmas? Will you embrace him? Will this be the moment that you put your trust in Christ that leads to a whole host of moments of worship and even to an eternity of knowing him in glory? Secondly, let God's love Inspire your love of people. I often say, we often say, that we aim to be a gospel-centered church. That we want to be gospel-centered in our lives, gospel-centered in our families, gospel-centered in our congregations. And I hope you get a glimpse of what, that, what is meant by that here. That we love, not because we're merely commanded, but we love because love has been shown to us and the transformation has been provided. That we love in response to what God has done through the gospel. And that we never want to give exhortations in this place that aren't connected to what God has done for us in the gospel. Because apart from Jesus, I can do nothing of any good. And neither can you. So will you come to know him? And if you know him, 
Will you let his love inspire your love of other people? Will you let his gospel work lead you to gospel love in other people's lives? And I think that loving one another really includes two components. Sacrifice and willingness. Sacrifice and willingness. First of all, sacrifice. It is sacrificing oneself for others even though they may be so undeserving. It includes husbands and wives laying down their perceived quote-unquote rights and serving one another out of love and out of patience and out of humility because Jesus did that. It includes making personally hard and costly decisions which are best for a child or for another loved one in order to put his or her long-term needs first. And even though it hurts and it's hard, we do it because Jesus did it for us. It includes surrendering one's time and one's energies for another person or another family in the church who need the investment of discipleship or the ministry of encouragement. And it's done because Jesus surrendered his time and his energy and his blood for us. It includes forgiving the person in your family, forgiving the person at your work, forgiving the person in the church who has wronged you with sinful words and sinful actions because Jesus has forgiven those who have wronged him with sinful words and sinful actions. Love requires sacrifice as it looks to the sacrifice. Secondly, love Sacrificial love is a willing love. It is a willingness to open both one's heart and even one's earthly goods to help meet the tangible needs of other people, especially others in the church. This may require, of course, saving a little bit of money each month so that you have something to give to others when needs inevitably arise in their lives. It will likely include looking out for the neediest who are around us, especially the orphans like foster kids. And widows, shut-ins whose hearts are broken because they've lost a spouse of so many years. And even those who have such hard stories and who traipse around Florida's Gulf, Florida's Sun Coast, without any homes. It is love even for the least of these. And it will certainly include, this willing love will certainly include helping your brother or sister in Christ as they experience job losses and expensive health bills and numerous other one-time needs, the sacrifice of love will require a willingness to give of ourselves. And all of this love is demonstrated in response to God's unfailing, perfect love for his people, which he demonstrated by sending his only son for us at Christmas. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, help Riverside to be a church that is marked by true love for one another. We know that this is a battle because though we are children of God, blood-bought, transformed with new hearts, we still have the old man, the old woman that we battle, Lord. And Lord, it is a war, but we often get the focus upon ourselves and our wants and our lusts, Lord, and we forget about the Savior, 
But, oh, Lord, I pray that in this place we would constantly be reminded of the Savior and that your word would constantly point us to the Son and that, Father, in clinging to him, we would become a people, Lord, who lift high the name of Jesus and go forth in his love. Oh, do that, we pray. And I pray that this Christmas season would be the sweetest on memory, even though this year has been so challenging. The sweetest on memory, Father, not because of all of the extra stuff, Father, but because at this special time of year, we've had a wonderful reflection upon Christ, and his love has warmed us to the point that, Father, we seek to be used by you. We thank you for this opportunity once again to open your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name.